Well, welcome back, guys, for episode 20. Holy moly. <laughs> episode 20. Crazy. It was nuts. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're in the double digits. We have been for a while, but like 20, it's just... Woo. Yeah, now we're in a new, you know, a new part. Yeah. Like we're in the 20s now. What do we call yeah. it? It's the new decade. Of, it's yeah, the new it's decade like a new decade. podcast uh, time. That's right. <laughs> so it's fantastic. And we have a pretty great episode yeah both of our stories are super fucking long <laughs> so, <laughs> yep yay so it's gonna be but you know what whatever it's episode 20 it's okay if it's if it's a little longer buckle up bitches buckle up bitches there are some stuff we wanted to talk about but we're definitely not going to this episode just because we don't have time <laughs> i mean we could make that's time, legit but yeah we just don't want it to be a two-hour episode so let's start off with like we always you know with our crickets how's everyone's week <laughs> i'm feeling better I just finished my medication, so I'm feeling better, but my stomach has been super queasy and stuff, uh, but definitely better than I was last week. Holy cow. Thank the darkness. Thank the darkness. I just hate feeling down. Oh, it's awful. Like drained. Yeah. And I hate seeing you like that. Yeah. And I could see how drained you were last week, even. And then like, you looked gray. I'll, I'll be oh, completely yeah. honest with you, honey. I love you to pieces. You're beautiful, but you looked like shit. Oh, I know I did. <laughs> you don't You don't have to tell me. I mean, you can. <laughs> You're just reaffirming what I already knew. Yeah. But oh, yeah, I looked in the mirror and I was like, my skin's a shade of gray. Mm-hmm. And even still now, like my bags are still kind of whatever and like, but I'm bouncing back. Yeah. Right? So, but oh, man, I remember looking in the mirror and I, I said to myself, I was by myself. I was like, dude, you look like shit. And then I started laughing by myself and then I went to bed. <laughs> But like I knew 100%, I was like, yeah, this is this is not good. It's a, a sickly shade of gray. Anyway, that blows. But but at least you're on the mend. I am on the mend, and I feel like I have energy again, which is great. Right. Because I even listened to the last podcast. I mean, like always, and it's great. But I can hear it in my voice. Like I can hear that I'm just down here. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't like hearing myself like that. No. At all. Me neither. Nope. How was your week? Let me guess. Busy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, it, it was really busy. Yeah, I was really busy at work and stuff. I did some cultural stuff at work, which was really great. We have a program for our preschoolers through the company that I work for. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's what Cecily went to yeah. when she, before she went into kindergarten. So I went there on Thursday and taught them about cleaning salmon. So I did that oh, again. Cool. Yeah. So I taught them about that. And then like the different things you can do mm-hmm. when you're processing salmon, there's different ways to do stuff like deboning and stuff and all that. And then it was cool. Cause it was also a biology lesson for them as well. Yeah. Like when I did, I'm sorry, Diana, but when I did like the degilling, I explained to them when I had the gill out, gills out, I showed them, you know, what they do mm-hmm. and or told them what they do and stuff, their purpose and all that for the fish and how they're, they basically act as, you know, like the fish's lungs type of thing. And yeah. they help with the, you know, like uh, taking toxins out of the fish and all that. And they're super important. And the kids were just all about it. Cool. All of it. Cool. Yeah, it was, it was great. It was a great learning experience for them. I enjoyed it. I smell like fish for the rest of the day. Gross. Oh, yeah. Like, I had to <laughs> I had to drive to our other location in Kelowna, because there's a few different locations around town. Yeah. And I had to drive there, and I was at the red light. I'm like, to my hands, like, and of course, I'd wash them, obviously, multiple times. I was just like, I still smell like a fucking fish. Gross. Yeah. It's, it's so hard to get that smell off. Work has been just super, super busy these days exciting things on the horizon with work like I told you about so yeah I have a lot to look forward to and everything else has been good it's been good I'm 
however, very much so over this really warm weather because it is impeding on my hunting season really badly. Like how? Like it... I haven't gone hunting at all. It's too warm. Oh, okay. So yeah. it's not like the animals are... It, it's affecting the animals. It's affecting you because it's too hot for you. It's affecting me because it's too hot, but it's also like it's a chain reaction. It affects the animals too. And okay. then when it's warm out, they're not active. They oh, just want to okay. go lay down and stuff. So then it becomes increasingly more difficult to locate them okay. and stuff like that because they just want to go bed down in this heat. It's the cold that makes them active that gets them going. I mean, that's one of the reasons why, one of the reasons why like deer, moose, a lot of herbivores are very, actually I would say even predators, no predators more so in the evening, but herbivores are quite active in the morning and the evening and it's really chilly and brisk, right? And it gets them moving and yeah, up out sense. of bed and stuff. Yeah. So when it's warm, they don't want to do anything. I do notice with the deer and stuff here, I will see them usually in the mornings if I'm up that early because I am not a morning person. They're out and about. Yep. They love that. But then during the day, they're usually sleeping somewhere. Yep. And then at night, they start coming out again. Yep. So Time to party. Kinda, yeah, exactly. So I do notice that. Totally. Just around here. Yeah. Like around the house. So that's their, yeah, like their natural habits, right? Mm -hmm. So it's the, sa it's the same in the woods. Yeah. So that's really impeding on my hunting season and I'm over it. <laughs> I want this really cool brisk weather to come in and get out there and do some hunting finally. So well, it's it's brisky today out there. <laughs> it is. You complain because I had all my windows open yesterday. And, I complained. Uh, well, yeah, because you say it's an igloo. Well, no, it was just time. an igloo in your room because you had like fifty <laughs> billion fucking fans on and all the windows open. Oh, well, okay. I didn't know the. I didn't even realize the windows were open because the fans were so cold. Well, the sliding door was open. Oh, I right? guess so. Yeah. All okay. The and then the window in my washroom was open. So I don't are, even. Sorry. Yeah. So those are the two windows, whatever I have in my room, but. The sliding door is obviously bigger than a window because it's, mm -hmm. it's a sliding door, right? So, yeah, I had it all the way open. And I just like the air in my room. And then, yes, I had three fans going. Yes, three. <laughs> it is what it is. I'm menopausal and I'm hot. And poor Steffi, my dog, she now sleeps with a fan in her face. So I have one on the bed that her and I share. <laughs> and she usually... I always wake up and she's got her face pressed right up against it. She's going through her hot flashes and stuff at her old age. So it works. But yes, I know. Yeah, you were under a weighted blanket. Then you had a full... I went and got you a full... Um, duvet. Duvet. And then you had your sweater on. Mm-hmm. And then you pulled your arms. Yeah, because we were watching a movie. We were going to record yesterday, but then it just got too late. And we were like, fuck it. Yeah, we were both tired. We are like, no, let's go watch a movie. Yeah, let's have popcorn in bed and watch a movie. So we did. Yep. And we watched an amazing really really fucked up movie <laughs> i've watched it i don't know how many times and i kept telling chantelle you have to watch this movie <laughs> i was more than happy to watch it again last night with you and just to see your reaction because it's just when you think you figured it out uh, uh right to the like the end right to the bitter fucking end yeah and just... even the last scene you're like oh did not expect that either <laughs> no right it's just plot twist after plot twist just yeah. Plot twist, motherfuckers! Yeah. So it's called Old Boy, and she says that because Samuel L. Jackson is actually in it. He's yeah. not the main star. Motherfucker! Yeah. Motherfucker! Um, so he is in it, and it is... It's not a horror. It's a thriller. It's a psychological thriller. Very psychological. Like, yeah. you almost feel the pain and injustice that's going on. Yeah. And it's just, it's like, it's too much to bear. It's a, it's a hard movie to watch. Yeah. It's not easy. It's not for the fucking faint of nope. heart. Nope, not at all. You have to be strong enough to watch that movie. Yeah. Well, and, I, and that's why, like, when I told you about it, I kept saying, just, just be ready. It's, yeah. it's fucked. Like, it's fucked up. And the gory scenes, again, it's not a horror movie at all, but there's 
gory scenes like murder and blah 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 and those are unpleasant <laughs> they're so like brash right just like oh very fuck, that very happens. brash gory yeah. yes and but then the psychological is so messed up you don't want to give it away like when someone's watching that's why i didn't give anything yeah away you to can't you. say what's gonna happen no because you just can't you ha- you have to watch you it. have to watch it but yep. i kept saying dude like it's fucked just be ready <laughs> and then a few times i was like just when you think this is like the most fucked up it's gonna get uh-uh and you're like what <laughs> Yep. <laughs> so, Old Boy. It is a phenomenal movie from 2003. Uh, 2013. 2013, yeah. sorry, yeah. You gotta, you guys gotta watch it. Definitely Just have to prepared, watch it. be prepared, man. Just be prepared. Buckle the fuck up, man. Yeah, buckle up, bitches. <laughs> Such a good movie. So, yeah, we watched that, and I, I think we were done, like, 3.30 in the morning or something like that? Like, we went to bed? No, I think it was, like... Just Three? after two. No, I think it was later than that because I... Really? Oh, yeah. Because you went to bed and then I looked at a few videos and then I was like, holy fuck, it's almost four. I should go to bed. Oh, I thought it was like 2.15 or 2.20 or something no. like that when we went to bed. No, it was like 3.30 when you finally went, I'm going I'm going to bed. Really? <laughs> oh, okay. I must have, When I looked at my phone, it must have looked like a two or something yeah, then. It was 3.30. Crazy. So I was like, yeah, I'm sleeping in tomorrow. Yeah. So I slept in. I was awake. My alarms kept going off and I just kept smacking them. I'd look at the time and go, ah, another half an hour. <laughs> and then I'd go back to sleep for another half an hour. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, I was like, ah, oh, fuck. I got to finish writing my story. Oh, my God. That sounded story. Every story. time I say that, and when you say it, it makes me laugh. Story. Story. My story. It is nine and a half pages long. And just every time I thought I was finished writing it, I wasn't. Mm-hmm. And it just kept getting longer and longer. I was like, fuck. So... I got to get up. I got to finish writing the story so we can record so we can go to that party tonight. Yeah. Because that'll be fun. That's going to be very fun. It's going to be lots of fun. I told you guys about my friend Jay who is moving back to uh, the East Coast. And her going away party is tonight at her and her fiance's place. Going to see some old coworkers too that I haven't seen in a hot, hot minute. Yeah. It's going to be great. It's going to be fun. Yeah. And I'm so stoked that you're coming. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jay, for inviting Diana too. Yes, thank you, Jay. (laughs) I'm so glad that you're coming as well. It's just, it's going to be a gas. It's going to be fun. I hope they have the fire going. Oh, I'm sure they, I'm sure they will. And I'm sure they're going to bring the guitars out. There's nothing like sitting around a fire. Right. With guitars going. It's amazing. It's It's so great. So great. Oh yeah. And a drink in hand, of course. Of course. And a doobie. And that too. Yes. Yeah. So it was just so great when we were there last time before we went to the corral yeah it was it was so nice it was so nice yeah two guitars out people singing the fire was going it was just great and then we went to the corral but yeah so hopefully they have some of that going on tonight. i I hope so i'm sure they will i'm sure they will yeah it'll be fun so is there anything else you want to talk about i have a bit of a funny story the other day i was in traffic and this guy was driving ahead of me in a truck he had a different type of license plate and I could not read where it was from, but I was like, I want to know where this person's from because it was such a unique looking license mm. plate. One that like you don't see all the time. Like it's not like it was Washington or California. It wasn't. It was like somewhere way the fuck far away. And you're like, where is that person from? <laughs> but the print was like, you know, that really old style, like blocky print that was used in like back in the Western days. Yeah. On, like, wanted posters. Yeah. Had print, like, that type of font. Oh. But it was, like, fucking compact and small. And I'm blind as a bat. I was going to say, were you wearing your glasses? No. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> of course I wasn't. Of course you weren't. And just to clarify for everybody, I can drive during the day without my glasses. Yeah. I just can't read writing. Like, I can't read street signs. But, like, I can see. I can see. Oh, yeah. That I'm not going to fucking hit anybody. But at night, I have to wear my glasses. Yeah. My eyes aren't good enough to drive at night anymore. That's most people. Like, I've got perfect vision, basically. But when my eyes start getting tired, and especially at night and out here, there's no street lights and shit. It helps. Yeah, so, it does. Um, so add yeah, no, that I'm, with being nearsighted. <laughs> yeah. And your glasses look so good on you. Thank you. As, you they, as they sit on the on sit- your head. <laughs> they're, they're sitting on top of my head. Yeah, they're sitting on top of your head. But they're, they're awesome. I think they look so good on you. You should wear them more often. Thank you. I should be because <laughs> I'm just going to make my eyes worse not wearing glasses. And I know that. Yeah. I just fucking hate wearing glasses so much. I can't wait to get contacts. I'm driving behind this guy and I'm like, what the hell? Is that license plate? And we get to roundabouts, and I'm I'm in the roundabout behind him, like <laughs> leaning forward over my steering wheel, squinting, trying to see his license plate while, of course, maintaining a safe distance. But I'm like <laughs> trying so hard to read it, and I just could not fucking read it. It was driving me crazy. And uh, the writing was brown, and then the the license plate looked like a blue sky type of thing. It was like a, almost like a a picture in the back, like the background oh. of the license plate. It almost looked like a I'm trying uh, to it. Okay. like a landscape. Mm-hmm. Finally, we get to the lights and I had my eyeglasses ready and I had my sunglasses <laughs> on. And as soon as we stopped, I swapped them off. And then I like unbuckled and leaned forward <laughs> over my dash and looked. He was from North Dakota. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. And then I was just dying. That's funny. Yeah. I was laughing so hard. Actually, I was laughing the whole time That's trying funny. to read it. I'm like, this is so ridiculous. <laughs> trying so hard to read this license plate. And yeah. I just kept cracking the fuck up. Cool. I think yeah. I have seen those license plates. I like the ones that are sh- like the actual plate is a polar bear. Like yeah. It's shaped as a polar bear. Alaska's. Al- yeah. yeah. Alaska. So it's, it's not a square license plate. It's a polar bear shaped license plate. I think yeah. those are cool. Those are pretty neat. There's some neat ones out there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen any unusual places where you're like, holy fuck, you're far from home? Oh, all the time. Yeah. In Kelowna though? Oh yeah. Which ones have you seen? Like a bunch from the States, states that are on the east coast up here and then you you see the ones from eastern canada yeah so i've seen manitoba i've seen saskatchewan although when you think about it saskatchewan is is only it's not that far no it's it's just two provinces away. yeah it's just two provinces away but still yeah i've seen pei plates and that's like right at the east coast so yeah yeah, it's it's kind of cool to see the plates from other provinces especially the really eastern ones. yeah or like yeah like the really southern states and stuff yeah. like every once in a while i'll see like alabama here yeah or yeah. mississippi and i'm like holy fuck you're far i see alabama often actually yeah yeah no i've seen alabama i have seen mississippi i've seen uh, a lot of the southern states it's kind of cool it is the two farthest places that i've seen in Kelowna. i've only seen each of them once and it was so fucking sweet i see new york and oh, hawaii yeah. Yes. And when I went, when I see the person in Hawaii, I ended up beside them and I went like this, like hang <laughs> loose and they loved it. That's but awesome. yeah, I was like, holy fuck, Hawaii You're up here. You're far from home. Yeah. And it was like that when I see New York and New York license plates are so recognizable. Mm-hmm. They, as soon as I see one, you like, you know, yeah. and I was like, holy shit. Like same thing. That is, you are far from home. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of crazy to see all the plates that we get here. Yeah, it's cool. But it is like a vacation town. Yeah, really. it's a vacation. It's a tourist destination it's a, here. It, definitely. Oh, yeah. The Okanagan. Yeah, definitely. So we do see quite a few different plates out here. One time when we were deep in the U.S., we came across another British Columbia license plate. Oh. And we were like, <laughs> cousin. That's funny. <laughs> right? 
Well, when I first moved out here talking about plates, I was, I've only lived in Ontario in Canada and I was so excited to be moving to another province because I was like, ooh, different plates. It's the exact same fucking color as it is in Ontario. They're blue, like blue letters. And I was like, fuck, <laughs> that's boring. <laughs> so I was so excited because yeah, Alberta's red, Saskatchewan's green. So like every, I think Manitoba's black, but yeah. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to get different plates. Uh, uh-uh, They're the exact same. Yep. So when uh, the province started doing those provincial plates, you yep. can pay, I think you pay an extra 50 bucks a year when you renew your plates, it's an extra $50, but then that money goes towards all the provincial parks and stuff. Yeah. So they're beautiful. So I, w- I opted out for that because I was like, I'm tired of having the same fucking boring white and blue plate. <laughs> I got to do that because I want to do that and I keep forgetting to do it. Yeah. And there's such pretty ones. Like they're the, beautiful. Yeah. There's ones with mountains. There's ones with bears on it. Yeah. The one I have is like pink and blue. Like it's like a sky. Escape. Yeah. Those ones. Yeah. Yeah. And I got that one. I wanted to get the bear one, but I got that one because my truck's white and I just, I don't know. I thought the color looked nicer with the white mm-hmm. instead of the, the bear one. Cause it was like green and brown and stuff. And I was like, well, it's cute. I love it, but I wanted something brighter. Yeah. So I ended up getting the one I have, and I absolutely love it. I'll always do that. Like I said, it's fifty fucking. Yeah, exactly. Like it's, exactly, it's an extra fifty bucks a year. Yeah, and it's going F- to support our parks. Yeah. What uh, better? What? Yeah, exactly. And they're pretty. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. What better way to spend fifty bucks a year? Right. When I've told people that, they're like, you're paying extra? And I'm like, it's $50, man. Yeah, like, give me a fucking break. I would do it if it was like a $50 extra every like three months or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's really nothing. Mm -mm. Well, I wasn't going to bring this up, but I will before we get into our stories, because we have already talked for longer than we said we would. (laughs) But going back to like the movies, a few episodes ago, Chantel had brought up Darkness Falls. So I ended up buying it digitally and watched it. And she was like, you're going to be so scared. I watched it twice because I thought maybe I missed some of it the first time. The movie is really well done. Cinematically, it's an amazing movie. Oh, yeah. Incredible. It didn't scare me at all. <laughs> she was like, you weren't scared? I was like, no. I told her she was going to shit her pants. Yeah. You actually said that on the I episode. I said the podcast, you're gonna yeah. shit your pants. Yeah, get ready like, to shit your pants. I was actually kind of ready for it. I was like, <laughs> diapers and all. Pull on my diapers. I'm going to shit my pants tonight, according to Chantel. No shitting pants happened. <laughs> Thankfully. Thankfully. If I were preemie getting comfortable with horror movies 15 years ago, 20 years ago, if I, if I watched that, I probably would have shot my pants. <laughs> probably. <laughs> but now I was like, I loved it. I'm happy I own it. I'm happy for you too. Maybe one day you'll want to watch it again. Nope. Honestly, <laughs> it's such a great movie. I know it's amazing, it but did it did not scare me at all. It makes me almost shit my pants. Just thinking about it. Just thinking about it. <laughs> like when I Googled it for you and then I seen a picture of that because it's a, like that creepy fucking tooth fairy yeah with her porcelain mask i seen it and i was like no 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 like i can't I, 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 yeah <laughs> move <laughs> get out of the way bitch yeah move bitch yeah get, get out, out the, the way, way. <laughs> exactly i'm going to shit my pants <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> not quite. Not quite. But uh, yeah, I can't even look at look at it. Like no. Okay, and I know I asked you this, and I can't remember how old were you when you watched it last, like thirteen or something. Like I that? was twelve or thirteen the yeah. last time. See, and you're almost thirty, so I think if you were to watch it again, maybe not right now, maybe in another ten years, you'll brave it up and watch it again. You'll be like, oh. I mean, maybe, but I still have a lot of fears that tie into that. Like I am still, I am absolutely terrified of the dark. And that's something that I have to fight constantly. I'm so scared of the dark. Are you I laughing at me? I was laughing because I thought you were going to say I'm scared of the tooth fairy. Oh. <laughs> 
I was giggling. <laughs> oh, no. When you started giggling, I was like, fuck you. No, because I, I know. have a fear of the dark, too. Yeah, I'm terrified of the dark. Oh, yeah, we talked about this. We did, right? yeah. Like, yeah. dark and me? Because mm, your mind plays tricks on you. You start seeing shit that's not there. Oh, yeah. Like, shadows and stuff. Or and you hear like, something and you're like, <gasps> yeah. What was that? I'm going to die. Yes, he's going to kill me. <laughs> Like when I'm closing the gates up at our place oh in the god, woods that's at night. Brutal. Oh my god, I'm convinced every single time mm-hmm. that's how I'm gonna die. It's how I'm gonna go. Something's gonna fucking jump out of the bushes and kill me. Yeah, every time I do, I'm like I brave it up and I'm like, I'm not scared. It's I just, same it's just dark. Right. There's, you know, animals out there, but they're fine, you know, and I hate it. I fucking oh, hate it's awful. going and that's why sometimes I'm like, maybe I'll just stay. <laughs> I don't want to deal with the gates. I don't want to deal with the gates because they're annoying. They are annoying. And then it's dark as fuck. And then you hear something and you're like, ah, scrambling yeah. back to your truck. Oh, and I hate that when you yeah. scramble and, and you have that like, fear. Fine. Nothing happened. See? Oh, yeah. I didn't die. No. Yeah. I 100% agree with you. That's like that's scary. Like that driveway at night and that gate, it's bullshit. I know. <laughs> that one time, what was it? Um. The Autopsy of Jane Doe, I think we finally watched Oh, yeah, that's house. a really good movie. Oh, amazing. Another amazing movie. So good. Autopsy of Jane Doe, yeah. <laughs> but then you had Jamie meet you at the gate, I think it was. Was it? No, was I don't. One it movie. wasn't for, yeah, it wasn't that one, but it was a different one. I was so fucking scared. Yeah, yeah. I had Jamie open, come and yeah. meet me at the gate. <laughs> I was so scared. Oh, I wish I could remember which horror movie that was. I'm trying to remember. Because the like, autopsy of Jane Doe didn't scare me that bad. No, it's, uh, again, it's psychological. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a lot of that kind of stuff. And yeah. then the eerie sounds and stuff like that can freak you the fuck yeah. out. But it's not really gory or anything like that. Not too, a little bit, but not a too bad. Bit. But it's it's the psychological stuff, and there's demonic stuff in it, too. Yeah. Which, honestly, is surprises me that it didn't scare me. I know. Because I cannot handle demonic stuff. I thought it would for sure, but... Yeah. No, I was pretty okay with it, because as far as the demonic stuff went to, it was pretty docile. It was. You know, it wasn't like people like that movie Evil Dead with that chick no. who's possessed and, like, peeking out from under the floorboards. Like, that <laughs> shit? Nope. Going, crawl, going down into, a, like, a, a basement... With a demonic person down there, not a fucking chance. <laughs> I'm good. Like, a pass. Thanks, yeah, though. <laughs> hard pass. Take a rain check. So yeah, stuff like that. I can't. I can't do it. But with that, the darkness falls one to it again. Like I told you, it's the sounds yeah. that Tooth Fairy makes. Yeah. The sound. I can still hear them. I think even at 29, honestly, if I watched it again, I think it would fuck me up just as much as it did before. Yeah. I think I would end up with nightmares all over again. I wouldn't be able to, like, Mm. walk around the house at night or anything. I definitely wouldn't be able to go down to the basement. (laughs) No. No. And and I understand why. Like I said, if I had watched that movie pre-me getting comfortable with horror movies, like, I fucking love them now. You know that. But before, just the thought of it, I I couldn't. Mm -hmm. If I had watched that at that stage in my life, I would have, like been where you are right now but yeah. now being where i am i watched it i love the movie great yeah it's the production a, great it's a cinematic masterpiece yeah, story, really awesome yeah like, the story's it. incredible yeah it, it's scary yeah it's scary as fuck it's scary like i mean definitely wouldn't recommend it to people that don't like horror movies no or afraid of stuff no but it, it was so good and i will watch it again because i enjoyed it so much yeah it was a great movie but yeah no if i had watched it prior to me being comfortable with horror movies i would have shat my pants yeah and i'm gonna be i'd be telling you about it right now that's legit yep the jump factor in that movie too oh yeah. my god yeah. and like, it's good jump factor because it is some are like so cheese this like is like scares. fucking scary yeah because it's like flashbacks mm-hmm. like when somebody you know like the main i still remember the name of the the na- main character oh my god tongue twister Ugh. i still remember the name of the main character kyle walsh yeah 
right? That guy who had, it started as a kid for him. Yeah. And when somebody was talking with him and then he, he was just like, the camera was facing him and I, I, I always, oh my God, I keep getting so fucking tongue tied. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll always remember. like a turkey. Yeah. Sorry. That's <laughs> fine. I'll always remember that, like, somebody was talking to him about his past or whatever, and then he just kind of had a blank face, and then it was, like, a flashback of that tooth fairy and shit and, like, mm-hmm. sounds that she makes, and it's, like, it's... The jump factor is so scary yeah. in that movie. And, yeah, it's a cinematic masterpiece. Totally. It was really well done, oh, especially uh, for fucking 2003. Yes. Like, yeah. amazing CGI. I was amazed. For 2003. I was impressed. Right? It's, it's making the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Mm. All right, let's stop talking about it then. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, yeah, I just wanted to touch on it because I'm sure a lot of people were going, did Diana shit her pants? <laughs> how did that go? Yeah. How did that go? Right? Anyways. Other than that, I think... Oh, do we want to, like, give we can the... shed some light on it. Shed... Okay, go. Oh, should I go? You go, because okay. you, you discovered it first. I discovered it first. Okay, so, yesterday... We had the sister of one of the serial killers that Chantal covered on one of our episodes reach out to us. And I'm getting, look, look at the goosebumps. I know, right? I know, I'm everywhere. getting fucking chills. And when I saw the message, because like, obviously we both have access to the, our shared Facebook and stuff. So yeah. I saw it, but I was doing something and like I saw it and I, I was like, no, I put the phone down. I finished what I was doing. Then I picked it up again and I had to read it a couple of times. And I was like, is this like fucking happening right now? <laughs> And I chatted with her back and forth, the sister of one of the serial killers we covered. And she reached out to us! I know! For new podcasts, we're like on fucking cloud nine. Yeah, we were losing it. I was having a mini party by myself. I when know. Di- Diana sent me a screenshot of it and I read it when I got home. Yeah. I was sitting in my truck and I read it between six to eight times. I just kept reading it over yeah. and over because I was like, no fucking yeah. way. Well, before I replied to her, I, I had to sit there like, because my brain wasn't under, right? it wasn't comprehending what I was reading. <laughs> totally. It wasn't computing. Yeah. It's just <laughs> too shocking. Yeah, I was I was shocked. And anyway, so we will touch base on that and give some updates. We're just not gonna tell you who it was and whatever, but next episode. Because we wanna give it time. Y- yes, exactly. And we don't have the time today, but we are just on fucking cloud nine. Absolutely. And we need to compile more of uh, stuff to, like to give people, right? Yeah. yeah Rather like, than just like, oh, this is who it is, blah, 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 but we don't really it. know a whole no. lot right now. Like, no, we need to be more prepared yeah. to tell everybody about this. Yeah, we do. So, so we will collect some information yeah. and then we will go into it next week. The fact that she reached out to us, mind blown. Mind, mind blown. Mind fucking blown. Anyways. Yeah. So stay tuned. <laughs> Motherfuckers. Motherfuckers. <laughs> Yeah, we have to get the uh, Samuel Jackson uh, accent. Motherfuckers! Yeah. Motherfuckers! Yeah. And the look, the flared nostrils. <laughs> We're going to have to start learn- like practicing flaring our nostrils when we say it. I'm no trying can- to. Yeah, I know. No one can say it like him. No one can. Absolutely not. And you hear him saying, you're just like, yes. It just makes you smile. <laughs> it just makes you smile. It's Samuel L. Jackson. Right? That's his trademark. Yeah. No, no one will ever say it like he. Never. He does. So we should get a little voice clip of him saying that stuff and, and put it into our podcast we like should. we have with other things. Yeah, crickets and all that. Yeah, we totally should. Crickets, crickets. Yeah, we definitely will. So you went, well, first last week because my story wasn't done. Yep. So I'm going to go first this you week. Bet. But I'm going to pause for like a second. For like a second? A second-ish. And we'll be right back. All right, we're back. My sources are Wikipedia, crimemuseum.org, theguardian.com biography.com 
My triggers are necrophilia, cannibalism, rape, murder, and mutilation. And you definitely know who this is. My story is about Jeffrey Dahmer. Oh, no way! <laughs> right on! And it just makes, like, I'm like, That's it's awesome. on TV right now, right? When I started making my list of people I was going to cover in the podcast, he was, like, my number two. Yeah. And I was like, well, it's on TV. Might as well talk about it. And it's such a good show. It's such, such it's a good incredible. show. incredible. Holy cow. Yeah. It is such an amazing show. Um, the acting is just stellar. Get out of my head. I was literally just thinking <laughs> the exact same thing. The acting is phenomenal. It's just such a good show. Yeah. All the actors, they just nail it. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. And those cops, yeah. like when they get the awards and stuff. Yeah. You got, did you get to, oh, I'm sorry. No, did it's you, fine. Did you get to that part of it? I um, didn't go into all of that because, like I said, I'm at nine and a half pages. And there was, like, certain stuff I just left out. Oh, no, yeah. I mean, like, in the mo- or in the show. Did you see oh, that? Oh, I did, yeah. Yeah, when those two cops get yep. awarded and stuff. Yeah. And they were suspended with pay. I wanted to yeah. just, like, reach through the screen and just knock them out. Like, yep. oh, I hate that that police forces are like that. I know. And we'll hear all about that in my story, too. Yay. Oh, yeah. Your story's uh, fucking nuts. It's fucking insane. Anyways, I don't mean to take away, Mm-mm. steal your thunder. Not at all. Steal your spotlight. Go ahead. So, yes. <laughs> I was like, I almost didn't do it because it's on TV right now. And I was like, well, what the fuck? Why not? I'm just going to do it. So, here we go. So, Jeffrey Dahmer was born on May 21st of 1960 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin to Joyce Annette and Lionel Herbert Dahmer. Uh, and I'm going to do my best to pronounce all these names right. <laughs> what was it? With the, uh, Is there uh, a Leonard? <laughs> I was thinking that too. Yeah, because when I saw Lionel, Lionel, I was like, Lionel? I was like, no, Lionel, damn it. Jay Quillen? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jay Quillen. Oh, we got to we gotta play a clip of that. We do. In the episode. It's so fucking So funny. funny. And he gets more and more angry. He does. Dude just gets rattled. Yeah, because, well, it's, just, <laughs> it's fucking hilarious. So yeah, Lionel, not Lionel, was his dad. So his mother was known to be greedy for attention and pity and started arguments with her husband and neighbors regularly. She was also a hypochondriac, suffered from depression, and attempted suicide on multiple occasions. When Jeffrey was in grade one, his father was in university and wasn't home much. Between his father being busy with school and his mother needing so much attention, they didn't really have any time to spend with him. Jeffrey was described as a happy and energetic boy until about the age of four. After having some corrective surgery for a double hernia, he completely changed. Like the lights went out of him. Just that happy-go-lucky little baby was just, the little boy was gone. His energy and spark... My next sentence. His energy and spark seemed to have just left. He became withdrawn after his brother, who is seven years younger than him, was born and due to the family moving a lot. So they just did not stay in one place for very long. One of his teachers from elementary school described him as a quiet and timid boy and that she detected early signs of abandonment. They moved to Doylestown, Ohio in 1966, where his mother gave birth to his little brother. They let Jeffrey pick his name, so he chose David. Later that year, his father earned his degree and started working as an analytical chemist. From an early age, Jeffrey showed an interest in dead animals. They say this interest may have started when he saw his father removing animal bones from under their home. His dad said that Jeffrey was oddly thrilled, in quotations, by the sound the bones made. Jeffrey liked to call the bones his fiddlesticks. 
He would search for bones around the house and liked to feel the bodies of live animals to feel where the bones were located. So he was just fascinated with their anatomy. Yeah. In 1968, they moved to Bath Township, Ohio. This was their third move in two years and the sixth move since his parents were married. Their new home was located on one and a half acres of woodland. They had a small hut on the property where Jeffrey kept different insects and animal bones that he had found around the property. He preserved some of these remains in formaldehyde. While having dinner, a few... Leo's very talkative today, so you guys might be hearing him just... And he's like playing under the pillows. Yeah, he's trying to get... He's trying to uh, burrow under something, and there's no blankets or anything here. <laughs> Leo. Hi. Burrowing kitty. While having dinner a few years later, Jeffrey asked his dad what would happen if they put the chicken bones from their dinner in bleach. His dad was happy that he asked and assumed that he was taking an interest in science. Jeffrey took what his dad had taught him and started doing this with all of the bones he had found moving forward. He also started collecting roadkill. Yay. He would dissect them and bury them by the hut and would sometimes place their skulls on crosses over their graves. That's normal for a young boy. <laughs> Extremely normal. <laughs> right? So normal. One of his friends said that Jeffrey explained to him that he liked to see how animals fit together. In 1975, Jeffrey decapitated the carcass of a dog and nailed the body to a tree. Yeah, and they don't go into any of this in the show either. Well, no, they have to pick and choose, right? Yeah, oh, and that's the thing. Yeah. That's why I was like, well, I mean, even though the show is on air, like, some of the details I'm going to give, like, it's not yeah, oh, for sure. there. So, yeah, yeah we're, we're getting to, like, learn about him as a child and all the fucked upness there. He took the skull and impaled it on a stick behind their home. Later that year, his father showed him how to preserve animal bones while his mom increased her daily consumption of Equinil, laxatives, and sleeping pills. She became increasingly more distant from her family. In high school, Jeffrey was an outcast. He started drinking beer and hard liquor at the age of 14 while in school. Wow. Yep. One of his classmates asked him what he was drinking one day and Jeffrey said, my medicine, it was scotch. Wow, mm -hmm. that's problematic. Just a little bit. The teacher said that he was very polite and very smart. When he reached puberty, he realized that he was gay and was attracted to men. He kept this to himself, however, did not share this with his family or friends. Jeffrey later admits that he would fantasize about dominating and controlling a completely submissive male partner in his early to mid-teens. When he masturbated, his fantasies focused on the chests and torsos of these males, and eventually he started fantasizing about dissecting them. When he was 16 years old, he fantasized about a jogger that he found attractive. He wanted him unconscious and wanted to use his body for sex. At some point, he hid in the bushes with a bat and waited for this jogger, but he didn't go by that day. Lucky for him. <laughs> oh, thank the darkness. Oh, yeah. Jeffrey later admits that this was his first attempt to attack a victim. He was known to be a class clown and would do a lot of pranks, uh, including pretending to have seizures and cerebral palsy. And people started referring to this as doing a Dahmer. He did this for money sometimes so that he could buy booze. Wow. So pretended to be this clown, just embarrass himself, but he needed booze, so. How did he get booze from that though? They would pay him. Oh, they'd That's pay what him. I mean. oh, yeah, okay. so like he would do these pranks sometimes like for money. Oh, I thought he just like would do them randomly. He would. Yeah. But yeah, at times he would get paid for okay, it. Okay, that makes more yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah and okay. then he would take that money and, and buy booze with it. 
His mom had an affair in September of 1977 and his parents decided to just get a divorce. They did try counseling before his father found out she had an affair, but once once they found out it was just done. So his father moved out in 1978 and lived in a motel for a short while. She eventually moved out of the house with her younger son and Jeffrey lived there alone. So um, his mom, sorry. Jeffrey graduated from high school in May of 1978. On June 18th, three weeks after his graduation, he committed his first murder. He was 18 when he picked up an 18 year old named Steve Mark, who was hitchhiking to a rock concert. Uh, Steven, not Steve, sorry. He lured Steven to his house with the promise of free booze. As they were driving uh, to Jeffrey's house, he knew he didn't have a chance with Steven as he started talking about girls, so he knew he wasn't gay. He was very attracted to Steven and just didn't care. He still wanted him there. They drank and listened to music for hours, but eventually Steven got annoyed and wanted to leave. He wanted to get to his concert. Jeffrey had other plans. He bludgeoned Stephen with a 10 pound weight and strangled him to death with a bar uh, from one of his dumbbells. He then stripped Stephen naked, stood over him, his corpse and masturbated. When he was done with him, he dragged him to his basement. The next day he dissected Stephen's body and buried the remains in a shallow grave in his backyard. Weeks later, he dug up the remains and cut the flesh off the bones. He dissolved the flesh in acid and flushed it down the toilet. He crushed all the bones with a sledgehammer and scattered it um, in the woodlands behind his property just to get rid of them. Yeah. But the guy's like 18. His father came home six weeks later with his fiance and realized Jeffrey was living alone. So the mother didn't even tell him, just left him there. Like, how nice. Jeffrey enrolled at Ohio State University, but nothing really happened uh, with that due to his drinking. He was just too inebriated all the time. He then enlisted in the U.S. Army in January of 1979 and was deployed to West Germany on July 13th of 1979. Due to his drinking, he was eventually deemed unsuitable for military service and was later given an honorable discharge in March of 1981. They provided him with a plane ticket to travel anywhere in the U.S. and he chose to go to Miami Beach in Florida so that he wouldn't have to face his father and the cold weather. Apparently he hated how cold it was. I do not blame him for that part. He got a job at a delicatessen and rented a room in a motel. Most of his salary was spent on booze and was eventually evicted from the motel for not paying rent. He called his dad and asked him to come home in September. So back to Ohio. He was arrested for drunk and disorderly conduct and his father shipped him off to live with his grandmother in West uh, Alice uh, in Wisconsin. She was the only person in his family that Jeffrey showed any affection towards. They were hoping this would help Jeffrey and that she would be a positive influence in his life. It seemed to be working at the beginning as he accompanied his grandmother to, accompanied his grandmother to church. He did chores willingly around the house and was looking for work. He followed all of her rules, but still drank and smoked, which she wasn't okay with, but he did it anyway. He found work as a phlebotomist, which is a really fancy word for someone that draws blood. So like when you go to the blood clinic or, you know, getting blood drawn, whatever. Phlebotomist. That's funny. He did this for 10 months and then was eventually laid off and didn't work for the next two years. He basically lived off an allowance that his grandmother gave him uh, for those two years while he was unemployed. He was arrested for indecent exposure while unemployed in August of 1982 at a fair on the fairgrounds where about 25 people saw his pecker. (laughs) I love that that's your choice of words. Yep. You know, pecker. <laughs> I don't use it throughout the whole thing, but I just think it's a funny word. It is funny. <laughs> they saw his pecker. I mean, he was on fairgrounds. It just sounded right. <laughs> <laughs> 
However, this did include women and children, unfortunately. Unfortunately, yeah. Yeah. Uh, He was hired as a mixer at a chocolate factory in 1985. And as soon as he said that, I was like, oh, fuck. Have I eaten chocolate from that chocolate factory? Jeffrey Dahmer working at a chocolate factory just makes me laugh. I don't know why. I think it's funny. Uh, While reading at a public library, someone threw him a note and offered to suck his dick. (laughs) Wow. Yep. At a library. I can't say that I remember libraries being like that, but hey, he did nothing with it, uh, with the proposition. So, surprise, surprise, though, it did get him all hot and heavy. So he decided to steal a mannequin from a store to use for his sexual pleasure until his grandmother found it and got rid of it because she knew what was up and yes they do show that in in the in the mm-hmm. show so she knew what was up and what he was using it for and she was not okay with it so she got rid of it in 1985 he was a regular at bathhouses that he described as his relaxing place he met other males wanting to relax at these places relax but became super annoyed when they moved during their sexual interactions he liked them to be uh subdued that's why he liked corpses so much During his arrest, he said, I trained myself to view people as objects of pleasure instead of people. So to keep with the corpse theme, he would give his partner sleeping pill-laced drinks. He wanted them unconscious and waited for the pills to take effect before doing his sexual deeds. After about 12-ish incidents at the bathhouse, they told him he was no longer welcome, so he decided to start meeting men in hotels. He read about an 18-year-old who had passed away and they were planning his funeral. He tried to dig up this 18-year-old's body after the funeral was over, but gave up as the earth was too hard to dig. Wow. Yep. In September of 1986, he was charged for masturbating in front of a 12-year-old boy. He said he was just peeing, but didn't realize there were multiple witnesses, so confessed the truth that he actually was masturbating and not peeing. (laughs) I'm guessing you don't need to choke your chicken when you're trying to pee. No. Nope. On November 20th of 1987, he met a 25-year-old male and got him to go back with him to his hotel room. His intention was to drug him and explore his body, but not kill him. He woke up the next morning with a dead body covered in bruises and blood. Jeffrey's fists were extremely bruised. He doesn't remember killing this guy at all. His name was Stephen Tuomi and said to the police that he couldn't believe this happened. He disposed of the body by shoving it in a suitcase and taking it back to his grandmother's house. A week later, he severed the head, arms, legs, and torso. He filleted the bones and cut the flesh into small pieces. He placed the flesh in a garbage bag, wrapped the bones in a sheet, and pummeled them into small pieces with a sledgehammer. This whole process took him about two hours. He threw everything in the trash minus his head. He kept his head for two weeks and then decided to boil it in a mixture of Soylex and bleach so that he could keep his skull to masturbate with. He overprocessed the skull and it was too brittle so he pulverized it and got rid of the remains. After Stephen Tuomi's death, he started seeking out victims at gay bars mainly. He would take them home to his grandmother's house, drug them with triazolam and tamazepam and then perform his sexual fantasies with them and kill them by strangulation he met 14 year old native american male sex worker james dox toter dox toter and offered him 50 dollars to pose nude for pictures he drugged him strangled him and left him for a week in the cellar before dismembering him he tried to salvage his skull for his sexual pleasure by boiling it in bleach but had overprocessed it and needed to get rid of it two weeks later 
On March 24th of 1988, he met Richard Guerrero, a 22-year-old bisexual man. Uh, I met him outside of a gay bar. He brought him home with the offer of $50 to just spend the rest of the night with him. Once there, he drugged him and strangled him to death with a leather strap and then performed oral sex with the corpse. He dismembered the body within the day and disposed of the remains in a garbage bag and pulverized the skull months later. On April 23rd of 1988, he brought another victim to his house and drugged his coffee. His grandmother was home and called out for him as she she thought he was home alone, Uh, but she saw that he wasn't. Uh, She saw that he had a guest and the guest wasn't feeling well and then eventually became unconscious and uh, obviously he couldn't kill kill him that night and the grandmother insisted on taking him to the hospital in september of that year his grandmother asked jeffrey to move out mainly because of his drinking the fact that he was always bringing these young men home and she did not approve and because the basement always smelled so dead bodies she couldn't deal with the foul smells that came from the basement and from uh, her garage so she just wanted him gone He moved into a small one-bedroom apartment at the end of September and was arrested a few days later for drugging and sexually fondling a 13-year-old boy who he brought home for a nude photo shoot. His dad hired Gerard Boyle uh, to defend him. At the lawyer's request, he underwent a bunch of psychological evaluations and they revealed that he harbored deep feelings of alienation and to be an impulsive individual. On January 30th of 1989, he pleaded guilty to the charges of second-degree sexual assault and for enticing a child for immoral purposes. Two months after his conviction, he murdered his fifth victim, Anthony Sears. He was a 24-year-old aspiring model. He had no intention of killing this victim, but only got to talking to him hours before the bar closed. So he decided to bring him back to his grandmother's house where they had sex oral sex and then jeffrey strangled him to death who knew sucking cock could be so dangerous <laughs> who knew <laughs> want to suck a cock face potentially stra- potential strangulation and death fuck man these poor guys they just wanted to get their jollies off and they died sorry <laughs> not sorry <laughs> i keep going not because it was a huge cock and he suffocated on that massive schlong no no what a way to go out <laughs> but instead the person's cock you were sucking doesn't know how to manage those feelings, and his automatic response is to strangle you to death. Jeffrey took Anthony into his grandmother's bathtub and decapitated his body, skinned him, and stripped the flesh from the bones. He smashed the bones to bits and threw it all in the trash, and uh, then he found his next victim. He found him extremely attractive and managed to preserve his head, dick and balls, in acetone, and put them in a wooden box inside a work locker. Can you imagine potentially finding this in a, a co-worker's locker? Nope. Nope. Dick and balls and stone. And a head. No and thanks. And a head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He moved the following year and took the dick and balls. Dick in a box. <laughs> he moved the following year and took his dick in a box with him. On May 23rd of 1989, he was sentenced to five years probation and one year in the House of Correction with work release so he could, you know, keep getting a job. He was also registered as a sex offender, finally. On May 14th of 1990, Jeffrey moved out of his grandmother's house and into an apartment on North 25th Street, taking Anthony's mummified head and genitalia with him. His new apartment was in a high uh, crime area, but it had everything he needed. It was cheap and it had what he needed. I mean, everyone, even if it is high crime, everyone should have been afraid of him. I can't see him being afraid of anything, so. No, probably not. No. 
He was there for less than a week and murdered his sixth victim, Raymond Smith. He was a 32-year-old male sex worker that Jeffrey promised to pay $50 for sex. He laced his drink with seven sleeping pills and strangled him to death. He took a number of sexually suggestive pictures of Raymond's body before dismembering him in the bathtub. He boiled his legs, arms, and pelvis, and then rinsed the bones in the sink. He then dissolved the remains in a container of acid, minus his skull. He spray-painted the skull and put it in a cabinet with another victim's skull. So he just loved to collect uh, skulls, which I don't think they show in the show. I haven't watched the whole thing, so I'm wondering if they'll, they'll actually show that. Yeah, I don't know if they show a collection, but I know that, like, when he gets busted by the cops and stuff, mm-hmm. they show, you know, like, kind of, like, flash pictures of, like, cameras taking pictures of all the bones and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I, I saw that too, yeah, so. About a week later, on May 27th, he got another young male to go home with him and tried to drug him, but accidentally drank the drug booze himself. What an idiot. <laughs> he woke up and realized he was robbed. Good, he he fucking deserved it. Right? Yeah. He had a bunch of missing clothes, a watch, and about $300 in cash were gone, but he never reported this, obviously. (laughs) I drugged myself accidentally and I got robbed. (laughs) Cops would fucking laugh at you. Right? In June of 1990, Jeffrey got 27-year-old Edward Smith to go home with him to his apartment. He drugged and strangled him. Instead of what he normally did with the bodies, he froze this one in his freezer for a few months hoping to save the skull because he's had very little luck preserving the skulls and it was important to him. So he accidentally destroyed the skull by putting it in the oven for too long and it exploded. This was the first body. He wasn't able to retain any of the body parts and he was mad. He couldn't keep any of it. Son of a bitch! Right? Less than three months later, he met 22-year-old Ernest Miller outside a bookstore. Ernest agreed to go home with Jeffrey with the promise of getting $50 for letting Jeffrey listen to his heart and stomach. You know, I'd be, like, so weirded out if someone goes, here's some money. Can I listen to your heart and your stomach, I'd be like, go get fucked. Get away from me. Yeah. Fucking psychopath. The fact that people kept going. I know, right? Like, not trying to victim blame, but seriously. Yeah. Come on. I mean, he was fairly attractive. Like, I was surprised. Like, he's not my type, but he was actually a a very attractive guy. So, I mean, I'm sure that had, that played a part in these guys going home with him. Yeah, and he's narcissistic, so I'm sure he had some, like, some sort of charm. Oh, yeah. Type of thing. And then, you know, these guys are drinking. They're probably doing coke, you know. Oh, yeah. So, clouded judgment. Totally. So, I guess if, you know, all that combined and somebody asks to listen to your heart for 50 bucks, and if you're hard up for money... I guess you might just say yes, but that is horrifying. It's still weird, right? Like, that is here's, freaky. Here's some money. Can I listen to your guts and your heart? Like, weird. Anyway. You're like, no, because I don't want to end up in yours. Yeah, right? So, of course, Jeffrey tried to suck his dick, and Ernest told him that would cost him extra. He was paid instead with a drink laced with sleeping pills. Jeffrey only had two pills left, so once he was somewhat subdued, because he couldn't get him to completely go out, he slashed his corroded artery with the same knife he used to dissect the bodies of all his victims, and Ernest bled to death within minutes. He took some sexy photos with Ernest and then dismembered him in the bathtub. Jeffrey kissed and talked to the severed head of Ernest while he dismembered the rest of his body. He wrapped his heart, biceps, and flesh from his legs in a bag and stored it in the fridge for later consumption. He boiled any remaining flesh into a jelly-like substance. I know. Oh, I know. I I wanted to throw up a lot. This is fucking gruesome. It's disgusting. It's it's pretty bad. Sorry, guys. (laughs) 
He preserved his bones by allowing them to dry after having soaked them in bleach. He stripped the severed head from any flesh, dried it, painted it, and coated it in enamel. On September 24th, about three weeks later, he met 22-year-old David Thomas, who also was a father of two. He took him home, then had a few drinks with the promise to pay him to pose for nude photos. He gave him booze laced with sleeping pills, but was all of a sudden no longer attracted to David. <laughs> he didn't want to kill him, but also didn't want to deal with David when he woke up from being drugged because he knew he'd most likely be angry with Jeffrey. So instead, he strangled him and disposed of all of his body because he had zero interest in keeping any of it. Because, again, attraction gone. In February of 1991, he lured 17-year-old Curtis Strauher, Strauter to his home promising money to pose nude and to have sex. He strangled him, dismembered him, and kept his skull, hands, and genitalia. He took pictures of the whole dismemberment process. He, he did that basically with all the bodies. Like, he liked to remember how it happened. So he took pictures of the process. Ugh, gnarly. On April 7th of 1991, he lured Errol Lindsay to his house. He was straight, so Jeffrey decided to drug him drill a hole in his skull and pour hydraulic acid into it, hoping to permanently subdue him. But his experiment didn't work. Errol woke up and said that he had a headache. Jeffrey drugged him again and strangled him to death and decapitated him. He kept his skull, skinned him, and tried to preserve his skin in water and salt for a few weeks, but the skin became too brittle and he had to dispose of it. In 1991, one of his neighbors had repeatedly complained about the horrible smell coming from Jeffrey's apartment, constant banging, there was shit constantly falling on the floor apparently, and she would hear chainsaws. This guy wasn't very uh, subtle. Not really discreet. Not very discreet no at discretion. all. No discretion. Nope. Property management did go to him, called him about the complaints, but he simply said that the smell was coming from his freezer as it broke and everything inside went bad. He then said, actually, it was his fish tank. He had a bunch of tropical fish that died, and that was the cause of the smell, because he left them in the tank, but he would take care of it. So management left it at that. On April 24th of 1991, Jeffrey met 31-year-old Tony Hughes at a nightclub. He lured him to his home, offering money to pose for photos, and tried to make him submissive by drilling a hole in his skull and injecting hydrochloric acid into his skull, but he put too much and this killed Tony. On May 26th, he met a 14-year-old named Konarak. He lured him to his apartment by offering him money to pose for pictures. He drugged him and took him to his bedroom. Tony was dead on the floor, on the bedroom floor, but Konarak was so drugged that he didn't even notice. And if he did, it was like he was just so out yeah. of it. It didn't even phase him. He performed oral sex on him while the boy was unconscious drilled a hole in his skull, injected hydrochloric acid into his frontal uh, temporal lobe. He lay down beside him, drank some beers, and then decided to go out to get more booze and drink at a bar. The next morning, he started walking home when he noticed Konarak sitting naked on the street with three ladies kind of surrounding him, trying to make sure he was okay. He tried to take Konarak back to his apartment, but the ladies said that they had already called the police and they wouldn't let him take him. Once the police arrived, Jeffrey told them that this was his 19-year-old boyfriend and that he had just drank too much. They had a fight and this was normal behavior for him. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, 
Yeah, so, so fucking sad. heartbreaking. Yeah. And I can only imagine those women too because they could have saved that kid. Yeah. But the cops were too fucking dense. Yeah, the cops were too dense. They were racist, yeah. homophobic. They're just like, oh, it's, you know, like an Asian kid and they're both gay. Yeah. Fuck the both of you. Yeah, pretty much. Oh my God, he literally had hydrochloric acid in his brain. Yeah, that's why he was so yeah out uh, of disoriented, it, like disoriented, a hole in his in his fucking skull. They let him take his boyfriend back to his apartment. The ladies were freaking out, saying that Konarak had blood on his testicles and his butt. But the police said, "quote butt out, shut the hell up, and don't interfere." End quote. Oh, and that's another thing, too. It was reported by African-American women. Yeah. So even more reason for the police to be like, fuck the lot of you. Yeah, pretty much. And it was, what, the 80s? Yeah. <laughs> like that's bullshit, I know. Fucking ridiculous. I mean, but to see the poor kid, he had blood clearly on his genitalia, yeah. on his butt. So from, I'm guessing, being raped. Oh, yeah, he'd definitely been raped. The fire department did show up shortly after and examined the boy. So there were three firemen there. One of them believed that he needed treatment. And uh, the officers told them to leave. So the officers led Jeffrey and his boyfriend back to the apartment while Jeffrey made small talk. They wanted to verify or try and get some kind of verification that this was, in fact, Jeffrey's boyfriend. So Jeffrey showed them the two Polaroids because he took two kind of sexually posed Polaroids of the kids the night before. So he showed them to the cops and he was kind of semi-naked in the photos. They didn't really smell anything out of the ordinary in the apartment, which blows my mind, but did say that there was a tiny bit of smell coming from the bedroom area. So they poked their head into his bedroom and that was it. They didn't see the decomposing floor. I think it was Tony on the floor. They didn't see it. They left and told Jeffrey to take good care of his boyfriend. They just filled it as a domestic dispute. That was it. Once they left, Jeffrey injected more hydrochloric acid into his skull, but this dose ended up killing Konarak. He took the next day off work so that he could concentrate on dismembering both of the bodies he had in his apartment. He kept both of their skulls. On June 30th, he lured 20-year-old Matt Turner to his home, promising him money if he posed for pictures. He drugged, strangled, and dismembered his body. He put his head and internal organs in a plastic bag in his freezer. On July 5th, Jeffrey lured Jeremiah Weinberger to his apartment, promising to spend the weekend with him. He drugged him and injected boiling water into his skull twice. This put him in a coma. And Jeremiah died two days later. He basically wanted corpses. Like, he clearly could have had all the sex in the world. But he didn't want all the sex in the world. He wanted, I mean, he did, but he just wanted it with a corpse. Yeah, this poor guy. I mean, I hope he was like drugged enough that he didn't feel the hot water going into his brain and like he went into the coma. So he doesn't really remember or know anything. So luckily he had that going for him. Poor thing. On July 15th, Jeffrey met 24-year-old Oliver Lacey. He was offered money to pose nude for some pictures. They had sex before Jeffrey decided to drug this one. He wanted to spend more time with Oliver. He really liked him and tried to knock him out with chloroform, but it didn't work. So he called work and asked for the day off and they, they gave it to him, but he was suspended the next day. He strangled Oliver to death, had sex with his corpse and then dismembered him. He put his head and heart in the fridge and his skeleton in his freezer. On July 19th, he was fired from work. This upset him. So he decided to find another victim to make him feel better. He lured 25-year-old Joseph Braderhoft to his apartment 
where he strangled him and left him on his bed covered with a sheet for two days. When he took the sheet off on the 21st, he found that his head was covered in maggots. Oh. He decapitated the body, cleaned the head and put it in the fridge. He then threw the torso along with the torso of the other two victims he had in acid to dissolve them. On July 20th of 1991, he offered three guys $100 to go back to his apartment with them to take some nude photos, to drink some beer and just to hang out. One of these men went with him, 32-year-old Tracy Edwards. Tracy noticed a really funky, unpleasant smell as soon as he walked into the apartment and noticed a number of boxes of hydrochloric acid on the floor. Jeffrey just told him that he uses those to clean bricks. Jeffrey tried to distract him and told him to look at his fish tank. And once he turned around, he quickly handcuffed one of his wrists. This freaked him out, obviously. Jeffrey was trying to cuff both of his hands, but he couldn't manage to get that done. And he asked Tracy to go to his room so that he can take nude photos. He had nude male posters all over his walls. He had The Exorcist 3 playing on TV. And he noticed a 57 gallon drum in the corner of his room that stunk to high fucking hell. Jeffrey pulled out a knife. Tracy obviously was trying to keep calm, trying to calm Jeffrey. And he started to unbutton his shirt talking nice to him and said, yeah, sure, we can take those nude photos, but can you put the knife away and can you take the cuffs off? Jeffrey didn't say anything. He eerily turned away from him, started watching TV. Then he started rocking back and forth, chanting something, and then turned, looked at Tracy, put his head on his chest to listen to his heart and told him that he was going to eat his heart later. Yeah. Yeah. I remember this scene in the show. Oh, yeah. And it was so scary that like, oh, my God, I swear I like felt a level of fear that that man was feeling. Oh, yeah. And it was horrifying watching him. He was shaking and just had tears running down his face. I know. It was was heart-wrenching. So hard to watch. It was very hard to watch. That poor guy. Tracy tried to keep him calm and told Jeffrey that he was his friend and had no intention of running away. He said he needed to use the bathroom and asked if they could drink in the living room as there was air conditioning in that room. So he agreed. Once in the living room, he asked Jeffrey again if he could use the washroom and caught him off guard. He noticed that Jeffrey wasn't holding the handcuffs because he was kind of trailing him around by the arm, by the hand. So when he realized that he didn't have the knife and he wasn't holding the handcuffs, he punched him out, knocked him over and ran out the front door. He managed to flag some cops down at around 11.30 p.m. and they noticed the handcuffs around one of his wrists. They tried taking the cuffs off, but their keys didn't work. So Tracy took them back to the apartment after trying to explain to him what the fuck was going on. He was there for five hours before he managed to escape. Wow. Yeah. Jeffrey was at the apartment and he admitted that he put the cuffs on Tracy, but didn't have an explanation as to why. Tracy told them that he also had a huge knife that he had pulled on him while they were in his bedroom. He just pointed the cops in the direction of his nightstand and said that the keys were in there. The cops saw the knife under the bed and a bunch of Polaroid pictures of human bodies in different stages of being dissected. The one cop showed these pictures to his partner and said, quote, these are for real, end quote. The cops were able to overpower him and cuff him. The cops opened the fridge door and found the severed head of a black male on the bottom shelf. The Milwaukee police came and obviously stripped that apartment, found four severed heads in the kitchen. 
seven skulls. Some of them were painted, some of them were bleached in his bedroom closet. Blood drippings in a tray at the bottom of the fridge. Two human hearts, a portion of an arm muscle, a torso in the freezer along with a bag of human organs and the flesh stuck on some ice on the bag, like human flesh. They found two entire skeletons, a pair of severed hands, two severed and preserved penises, a mummified scalp. In the 57-gallon drum, they found three torsos being dissolved in acid, 74 Polaroid pictures detailing the dismemberment of all his victims. The chief medical examiner later stated, quote, it was more like dismantling someone's museum than an actual crime scene, end quote. Wow. Yeah. In the beginning of July in 1991, on the 23rd, Jeffrey was questioned about everything he did. This stretched over a two-week period, totaling over 60 hours. Jeffrey waived his rights to have a lawyer present and wanted to confess to everything, saying, quote, I created this horror, and it only makes sense that I do everything to put an end to it, end quote. He admitted to killing 17 men. I'm not going to repeat... All of the other shit where he goes into more, believe it or not, detail than what I gave you of what he actually did to these bodies. And I couldn't. I was like, I think <laughs> I think I've traumatized the people enough, including myself. So I am not going to get into details. But these cops had to sit there and listen to everything he did to these people. His trial began on January 30th of 1992. He was tried for 15 counts of first degree murder. He pleaded guilty on the on January 13th to these charges and therefore waived his right to a trial to establish his guilt. On February 17th of 1992, Jeffrey read a statement prepared by himself and his lawyer. In his statement, he emphasized that he never desired freedom following his arrest and that he frankly wished for his own death. He further stressed that none of his murders had been motivated by hatred, that he understood that nothing he either said or did could undo the terrible harm he had caused to the families of the victims and to the city of Milwaukee, and that he and his doctors believed his criminal behavior had been motivated by mental disorders. He added that this medical knowledge had given him some peace and that although he understood that society would never forgive him, he hoped God would. He closed a statement with, I know my time in prison will be terrible, but I deserve what I get because of what I had done. Thank you, Your Honor, and I'm prepared for your sentence, which I know will be the maximum. I ask for no consideration. So that was like all a big quote from him. He was sentenced to life imprisonment for 10 years upon the first two counts. The remaining 13 counts carried a mandatory sentence of life imprisonment plus 70 years. The death penalty was not an option as Wisconsin had abolished capital punishment in 1853. His father and stepmother Sherry, Sherry, S-H-A-R-I, requested to be allowed a 10-minute private meeting with him once he was sentenced. And basically they all hugged each other and wished each other well before he was escorted away. Three months after his conviction in Milwaukee, he was extradited to Ohio to be tried for the murder of his first victim, Stephen Hicks. The court hearing lasted 45 minutes. He pleaded guilty to the charges and was sentenced to a 16th term of life imprisonment on May 1st of 1992. He spent this first year in solitary confinement. He was then transferred to a less secure unit where he cleaned the toilet block for two hours every day. He requested to be given a copy of the Bible. 
and gradually devoted himself to Christianity and became a born-again Christian. His father also urged him to read creationist books from the Institute for Creation Research. In May of 1994, he was baptized by Roy Ratcliffe. Roy visited Jeffrey on a weekly basis until November of 1994. They discussed the prospect of death and Jeffrey questioned whether he was sinning against God by continuing to live. When referencing his crimes, he stated, quote, if a person doesn't think that there is a God to be accountable to, then what's the point to try to modify your behavior to keep it within acceptable ranges? That's how I thought anyway, end quote. On July 3rd of 1994, Osvaldo Dureth, a fellow inmate, tried to slash Jeffrey's throat with a razor while he sat in the prison chapel. So mass had finished and he was just sitting there. He didn't fight it. He was, he was basically ready to die. He only received superficial wounds and survived the attack. His family said that he had long been ready to die and accepted any punishment with which he would receive, basically, or would endure in prison. His father and stepmother had regular contact with him, and his mother, Joyce, started speaking with him again. The last time she saw him was basically when she dumped him in, uh, in December of 1983. It was wow. Christmas time, by the way. She left him. Even better. Yeah. She said that she expressed concerns for his physical well-being, but he would respond with, quote, it doesn't even matter, mom. I don't care if something happens to me, end quote. On November 28th of 1994, Jeffrey left his cell to do his assigned work and was accompanied by two fellow inmates, Jesse Anderson and Christopher Scarver. They were left unsupervised in the showers for about 20 minutes. And when they came back, they found Jeffrey on the bathroom floor with major head trauma as as he was bludgeoned with a metal bar. He was still alive and was rushed to the hospital but died an hour later. Jesse was beaten with the same metal bar and died two days later. Christopher, so the third guy, was serving a life sentence for a murder he committed in 1990. Uh, sorry, 1990. He told the authorities that he attacked Dahmer with the metal bar and then attacked Jesse. He said that Jeffrey didn't fight the attack at all. He just took it. Wow. Yep. He didn't yell nothing. Just stood there and took it. Christopher was said to be a schizophrenic. After he attacked the two men, he returned to his cell and told the guards what he had done. And he said, quote, God told me to do it. Jesse Anderson and Jeffrey Dahmer are dead, end quote. Jeffrey stated in his will that he didn't want a service and wanted to be cremated. So he was in September of 1995. The fucking end wow yep thank you for sharing that you're welcome that crazy was incredible crazy motherfucker indeed yeah holy yeah the show amazing and you do get to obviously learn about every like a lot of stuff yeah he did and stuff but it doesn't go into like this kind of shit and it doesn't really touch on his childhood and whatnot he was just a broken child this was just like we, we've talked about before, how can someone stand the smell of death? Yeah, how can you live in that? How can you live in that? Yeah, how mentally ill do you have to be yeah. in order to be able to live in that? Yeah. Oh, and this, again, reminds me of the one, one episode I did. Shit. David Nielsen? Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I'm like, I know the name. David Nielsen. Same idea. Yeah. He was living with rotting corpses in his apartment. Yeah, under his floorboards. No big deal. No big deal. In cupboards, wherever he can shove them. Just open a cupboard and a foot falls out. Yeah. 
they're very similar these two cases very similar yep yeah that's that's the messed up story of jeffrey dahmer man holy He's a pretty fuck. fucked up individual oh yeah yeah. Sorry, I saw the I saw the look on your face a few times and you like gagging <laughs> with some of the details. Yeah, like when he looked at the head and it was covered in maggots. That really turned my stomach. Sorry, dude. No, it's okay. It's, we run a murder podcast. Oh, man. I know. I know. It's all good. It's part and parcel, right? Totally. Nature of the beast. Yep. Okay, Diana. Well, thank you for your riveting take on Jeffrey Dahmer. You're welcome. That was fucked beyond words. It was. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm glad. <laughs> Well, you know, the more fucked up it is, the, I don't know. That's the whole theme of it. Right? Totally. It's better to listen to, I think. Absolutely, right? (laughs) Yeah, no, for sure. I can't wait to hear again those other details while we're getting ready later. Yeah. As soon as we're done, I'm going to be like, all right, spill your guts. Spill the beans. Pun intended. (laughs) Oh, he spilled lots of guts. (laughs) He he fucking scented, bud. (laughs) Arf. All right, I'm going to tell my story now. Okay, so a little bit of backstory on this. We were going to record this for episode one. Actually, we were well, we were going to use it for episode one. Mm-hmm. We did record it. And then we were like, yo, this is too intense. This yep. is too much. We can't use this as a first story for me. Like, there's just no way. So we decided, or rather, sorry, I decided that for episode 20, this would be a great story mm-hmm. to, you know, be entering our new decade of the podcast. Yep. So I was like, you know what? Yep, I'm going to finally tell this story. And I feel the confidence to tell it now and everything. This is a collaboration between events that have been going on since the mid-70s to now, as well as a personal story of somebody who had to deal with all of these events that are I'm about to uh, tell everybody about. To cite my sources, allthatsinteresting.com, speakingmytruth.blog, grunge.com, mcleans.ca and aptnnews.ca i named my story uniformed serial killers there is so much that hasn't been told so many secrets so many lies cover-ups and broken families as well as communities today i'll be talking about the haunting starlight tours and their darkest harbored secrets i'm making this transparently clear from the start for our listeners that there is intense trigger warning for graphic violence murder torture rape intense police brutality, colonial genocide, and substance abuse. Fewer discretion is strongly advised. This story is not just intense because of the Starlight Tours themselves. It's intense because of serious allegations that have been brought to light from a previous employee of the RCMP who broke his oath and went public in 2021. So I need to make this transparently clear to everybody that what I'm about to tell in my story that's pertaining to this employee, this is public knowledge, and it has been for over a year. I am simply a megaphone, helping him project this out to the world more because everybody needs to fucking know about this. Oh, I know. So I will get to that. For now, I'm going to give everyone an overview of the Starlight Tours within Canada, and I will do my best to shed as much light as I can on several victims, but know that there are hundreds upon hundreds probably thousands, literally thousands of other victims who equally deserve a voice for their stories to be told. We keep them in our hearts and know that they matter just as much. The Starlight Tour began in 1976 and continues to this day. What happens is police pick up Indigenous people, intoxicated or not, oftentimes raping slash sexually assaulting the women. 
They beat the living shit out of either the men or women and inflict a unique kind of torture on them that pertains to the ultimate goal, which is for them to die. The Starlight Tour would typically take place in winter months where the police would drive these victims to the outskirts of city limits in the dead of winter in the prairies. Typically it was in the prairies. Mm -hmm. These calculated murders would occur during the night, thus Starlight Tour, where the police would take their shoes and jackets from them and leave them in the middle of nowhere to almost certainly die of hypothermia. There was a time in the mid-70s where this was a Canada-wide issue, but most prominent in Alberta, specifically the Wetaskiwin Department, which also gained the reputation as the genocide capital of Canada. Manitoba, specifically Winnipeg Police Department, where they have a death toll of at least 76 Indigenous people, and finally Saskatchewan, specifically Saskatoon and the Saskatoon Police Department. I'm sure most of you are aware that there has always been massive racial warfare and tension between police and First Nations for 148 years. It started with the NWMP, Northwest Mounted Police, in 1873. Then the RCMP, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, were established on February 1st of 1920. Investigations for victims didn't begin gaining widespread attention until 2000 when the frozen body of 25-year-old Rodney Neestis appeared by a power plant in Saskatoon on January 29th. On February 3rd, the body of Lawrence Wegner, who was a 30-year-old college student, was found in the same location. Of course, the RCMP were defended and an internal investigation was denied at the time, just one day before the body of Rodney was found. Daryl Knight was driven three kilometers out of city limits in minus 22 degrees Celsius, wearing nothing but a jean jacket over a t-shirt. When RCMP were ditching Knight, he recalls one of the officers yelling at him, get the fuck out of here, you fucking Indian. I'll freeze out here, Knight yelled back. What's wrong with you guys? That's your fucking problem, claimed the officer. That same month, the body of Lloyd Dusty Horn was found frozen on the edges of Saskatoon. This event was so traumatic for Daryl Knight that he left Saskatchewan and moved to British Columbia to heal. To this day, Knight has difficulty hearing and communicating due to the nature of the trauma and abuse, nor has he received an apology from the police for what they did to him 22 years ago. Two cops were simply sent to jail for eight months and then released. It is worth noting that when Knight spoke out against the police, he received multiple death threats. I would like to emphasize on the fact that time passed is not an apology. Nope. Daryl, if you're ever listening to this, I hope you have healed and found peace. Prior to the deaths of Naestis and Wegner, 17-year-old Neil Stonechild was found dead under very similar circumstances in 1990, wearing only a light jacket, jeans, and one shoe. To this day, there has been no justice for Stonechild other than two cops being fired in 2003 and an apology from the chief. To my knowledge, the lies surrounding his death that were cover-up lies to protect the guilty officers have never faced legal consequences. In fact, at the time, in 1990, the police closed the case within three days of finding his body. They simply said he got drunk, went for a walk in sub-freezing temperatures, <laughs> and died. Yeah, of course. Because that's super believable. Especially considering a member of the Saltio Nation, one of Stonechild's friends, remembers hearing Neil say, Help me, they're going to kill me. Could you imagine how fucking scary that would be to be in the back of a police car and screaming and begging for help because you know the cops are going to kill you? That's horrible. Even though I'm First Nations, mm -hmm. I don't, I've never had to deal with this. Yeah. I have been very privileged that way. I have never had to deal with this type of thing with police or really anybody yeah. ever because I don't look very visibly First Nations. 
That's that's the unfortunate thing for these individuals is they're racially they're, profiled. Yeah, exactly. It's horrible. It's horrible. Fucking horrible. Oh. Now on to Winnipeg police. In 2010, a study conducted by professors with the University of Winnipeg found that police clearly target indigenous men and have dumped at least 76 people outside of city limits. Quote, I think that it is a form of racism. Young men in particular are being pulled over constantly because they fit a description on the ground that they are an aboriginal men. End quote. Said Jim Silver, urban and inner city studies professor at the university. APTN National News spoke with one man in his 30s regarding his experience with the Starlight Tour. The man said Winnipeg police dumped him outside of the city about 10 years ago, so roughly around 2000, as this interview was conducted in 2010. Quote, they told me they were going to give me a ride home, end quote, said the man who requested to remain anonymous. Quote, when I woke up, they were pulling me out of the car, end quote. Honestly, these stories seem to be endless, and it was overwhelming breaking this all down into chronological order while ensuring I don't leave anyone out. But I, I just am. I know I am. Yeah. There are so many victims at the hands of police since 1873. It must be well within the thousands. These stories need to be heard. We must give the victims a voice they deserve and dismantle the abuse that is sought after by the RCMP. Now, I am going to get into the story of the man who worked for the RCMP and he has gone public and broken his oath. His name is Lauren Herring. I have been communicating with him closely via email since June about this. Mm -hmm. He has given me permission to share his story. He has given me permission to say his name. He specifically told me he does not wish to be under anonymity. He has even told me that he would go to court for this against police for everything that he has witnessed. Yeah. And I do mention this in, in his story, but I'll just make it known right now as well to give all our listeners a peace of mind. He presents credentials. What he's saying is legitimate. He presents credentials of his employment, when he started, when he quit. He wasn't fired. Not that, to me, not that that is a depicting factor of whether or not someone's telling the truth. Mm -hmm. Because they could get fired because they're trying to expose corrupt people. Yeah. So even if he was fired, that doesn't mean that he's not being truthful. But it collaborates with a story that he quit, he wasn't fired. He shows all of his credentials in uh, his write-up online. Mm -hmm. And I will include pictures of it in our Instagram post so people can see his credentials. Okay. And it's already public knowledge. Like, you can go find it. Yeah, exactly. So, here goes. Lauren's story. As of July 3rd, 2021, Lauren has gone public. The second part of my story is going to be a combination of me telling the story in my own words while incorporating key facts as well as quoting from Lauren himself, Again, respectfully with his permission. Lauren Herring worked for the RCMP at the headquarters in Ottawa as a civilian member of photographic tech in their forensics lab. He started in 1976 and willfully resigned in 1979. Starting his new career, he was ecstatic. Finally, he was able to put his photography and development skills to great use, and he was happy to be working for the well-respected Mounties. Little did Lorne know he was embarking on the darkest time of his life and would unknowingly be directly involved in the cover-up of horrific murders and tortures carried out by the RCMP. In his article, Lorne presents his certificate of services, which include full detail of his position, start date, and end date of when he resigned. This document collaborates with his truth. Lorne worked in the central processing lab for all RCMP detachments across Canada. The photos that he and his colleagues dealt with were of various autopsies as well as film rolls that were seized in investigations. 
Lauren was trusted with processing the more sensitive material. He quotes, blood, guts, and secrets five days per week, end quote. Upon beginning his new career, Lauren began processing photos beyond his worst nightmares. Mounties were horrifically beating their victims in the detachments. Lauren quotes, in spring when the snow melted and the bodies would be found, the RCMP would pose with the dead bodies like great white hunters, end quote. I would like to think the RCMP did themselves a wonderful disservice by hiring someone who is genuine and has no problems with throwing out the rulebook. Something worth noting, the RCMP were, and I quote, ecstatic, proud, and clearly laughing in the images with beaten indigenous people, end quote. Another quote from Lauren. So to be absolutely clear about what I am alleging, everyone who worked at that lab were witnesses after the fact to the murder of Indigenous Canadians committed by on-duty uniformed RCMP officers. I am a witness to genocide, end quote. Lauren recalls that he could barely tell the victim's head from that of a bloodied basketball. He notes that he could barely recognize the victims as human. Personally, I'd argue and say you could say the same thing about those type of police. Mm-hmm. Lauren states that the Mounties attempted to take pictures of the bodies being dumped. However, night photography in the 70s was not well refined and those photos did not turn out. During the warmer months, victims would die in RCMP custody and the deaths would be ruled as accidental, death by misadventure and even suicide. All of which were outlandish when all facts were considered. Lauren's estimation of victims averaged one per week for three years. That totals to 156 Indigenous victims over a three-year span. It must be recognized that during the Starlight Tour season at the peak of winter, the victims per week increased from all across Canada. The pictures grew to be endless and caused catastrophic problems. At the beginning, I foreshadowed in this story that Starlight Tours were a Canadian-wide issue. So were those trophy photos. That's what these pictures were referred to as. They, like the police called them that and stuff. They were called trophy photos. I also mentioned that there were three major provinces that were crippled by these monstrosities. Alberta's Wetaskiwin department had a particular amount of blood on their hands, including but not limited to their white room. The white room was an approximate 5 by 10 foot utility closet, which was empty and completely renovated in white tile. In the middle of the floor, there was a drain with a single light above it. There was also a single white porcelain pedestal bathroom sink. Lauren correlated the victim's bloody and swollen heads resembling basketballs with the blood and flesh on the porcelain sink. Lauren quotes, along with beatings, money would change hands, end quote. Lauren said that judging by the photos, allegedly, the winner was the Mountie who could splatter blood up the walls and bonus points were added if it reached the ceiling. He quotes, there is no amount of racial sensitivity training that could possibly root out the systemic racism in the RCMP, end quote. And I have to say, I believe that to be entirely true. I wish I could tell you guys that the sadistic trophies ended with the photos, but it didn't. There were plenty of Mounties who had indigenous people's teeth in jars. They rejoiced when they found flesh and hair in the drain or stuck to the sink. Bits and pieces of these humans were washed down the drain by cold, calculated killers with a fire hose. In the beginning, I foreshadowed that the RCMP would inflict a unique kind of torture that pertained directly to the goal of Indigenous people dying. They would soak them with the fire hose before dropping them off outside of city limits for their starlight tour. Could you imagine? No. God, Being soaked and then sent out into the prairies in, like, minus 25. No. Oh, my God. That's horrible. Ugh. 
Allegedly, in 1977, these horrifying images were coming into the lab in full rolls, demanding every working minute of the techs, not to mention demanding their attention outside of work and haunting their existence. The arrogance and sadistic demands from the police causing these murders progressed. Police began marking the trophy photo development as urgent, which meant that they had to be developed before any other work. Before any other police or forensic work. Mm -hmm. These photos of police murdering and torturing became the focal point of importance and actual cases were suffering. Trophy pictures were sent back and demands such as, quote, make the blood more red. Zooming closer to that ruptured eye. The mouth is off focus. I can't see how many teeth are left, end quote, started pouring into the lab. The purpose of these tech jobs were to create accurate photos to present as evidence in court. Allegedly, this whole corrupt operation grew so out of control that the RCMP had two techs devoted full-time to the demands of these trophy photos. Later, two more techs were placed on developing the photos full-time. Lauren became responsible for the mailing-out process, which involved matching negatives to prints, checking that the count was correct, and checking for defects such as dust specks. This checklist meant every photograph had to be analyzed. Complaints began flooding from across Canada as real crime scene and various other important photos were being pushed to the back burner, putting trials and investigations in major jeopardy. Not to mention staff began to seriously push back due to the enormous workload and the diabolical nature of the images. One employee could be heard sobbing in the staff sergeant's office over these photos and another woman begged to be removed from the mailing out process. Only when the lab's budget became impacted did the photos be removed from the chain of command to the commissioner's office. That's the only reason it became a lesser scale of importance when the budget was impacted. Wetaskiwin was single-handedly responsible for the lab running out of supplies and film. Kodak was falsely blamed for the supply issues. There was no policy put in place to end the beatings of Indigenous people. No police charged with murder. There was simply restrictions put in place on the trophy photos. It is also worth bringing up that even as this new policy was put in place, Wetaskiwin refused to comply and became increasingly entitled and demanding. Following that policy, Lauren never stepped foot in a dark room or picked up another camera ever again. There are certainly others to be held accountable for these heinous cover-ups. The coroners, doctors, and medical examiners who signed off on these murders as accidental deaths, minimizing these victims to a clumsy trip and fall. Meanwhile, these victims are brought into the morgue with mangled bodies, broken faces, broken skulls, teeth missing, and ruptured eyes. These corrupt professionals, and I hate even giving them that title, are responsible for covering up the murders of thousands of innocent indigenous people. They falsified death certificates and covered the tracks of one of the most brutal and corrupt police forces ever formed. It's time for statues that remind First Nations people of the raw and open wounds of genocide inflicted by the Northwest Mounted Police and the RCMP be removed. And this can't be conflated with forgetting history because when has there never been a war on indigenous people? Yeah. You know, like we've never had the opportunity to ever even forget history. History just keeps repeating itself. Yeah. And all the while, you know, and it's it's not even just Canada. It happens around the world, too. Like, everywhere. It never stops. And all the while, these statues keep standing of people who led genocide and led colonialism and stuff. It's just like people boohooing over the fucking queen dying. I know. Like, give me a goddamn break. 
defunding police in order to allow other essential resources the funding they need is a very good idea. Completely disbanding the RCMP is also something that should take place as the RCMP were literally established to initiate genocide on Indigenous people. They were. They were meant to take care of them. Same as the Northwest Mounted Police. That mentality has not changed and when, when a police force is put in place to wipe out a population, without question that police force should no longer exist. This male-dominant crusade of violence, terror, and unspeakable murder is one of the many reasons police need to be monitored more closely and have second-party investigations conducted that are not in cahoots with the detachments. While there is a lack of physical evidence, uh, like about all this, mm -hmm. and no doubt because this was classified information that was heavily concealed, and I couldn't find a shred of supportive evidence, Lauren has admitted again to breaking his oath with the RCMP as well as his silence. He has told me that he'd be, again, completely willing to testify in court and clearly will go to any measure to expose the truth, which is just so commendable. Yeah. I'm so proud of you, Lauren, for coming forward with this. Yeah, it's nuts. Um, so commendable. It, it's hard, especially because you know you're going to be under attack you're going to be watched yep. right so well yeah like he told me that he sought out legal aid first for advice yeah he found out that he can say this mm -hmm. this is fine but then there are things that he cannot okay. talk about okay uh because then the rcmp could go after him yeah. so he has to be careful what he says of so yeah he's also stated that he doesn't wish to say under anonymity as i mentioned earlier he truly believes that these victims need a voice and he couldn't handle them living in his mind any longer causing both mental and physical health problems. I love a good, I threw out the rule book story. Yeah. Fucking love them. Yeah. Lauren hopes that one day others who had to endure working in this torture will also break their silence and oath that mean nothing at this point. Everyone who was subjected to this could fucking open this story wide up. Yeah. Exposing the RCMP for who they truly are. Uniformed serial killers who have successfully gotten away with undocumented genocide for 148 years. And to end this is a quote from Lorne. When society's protectors become predators, no one is safe. And that is my story for episode 20. The it's impact. pretty heavy. It's very heavy. It was hard to write it when I started reading it because I remember I was even getting uh, hung up. I was like, I don't know what to yeah. write about first. And then I thought of the Starlight Tours and I was like, that's it. And then I did some more digging and then I came across his blog. Yeah. And then the more I read, it was just like, oh my God. God, just stuff that like, it doesn't seem obviously far-fetched, but you read about the impact that it had across Canada. Yeah. Cases were being put in jeopardy. That's <laughs> ridiculous. Actual police and forensic work wasn't getting done. I can't even imagine how many other people are beyond fucked up from having to deal with this. I just can't emphasize enough. And I know you feel the same to just come forward, yeah. break the silence. Hopefully more people will be hopefully like him and start coming out with their stories. But I understand the fear too of oh for of, sure definitely because yeah gonna what's be gonna happen watched and absolutely stuff. so I understand that fear definitely yeah so yeah guys I've been dying to share that story with you all and I'm just being a microphone for or a megaphone for Lauren's story to get it out there and please support him in any capacity that you can. Speakingmytruth.blog is where you can find his information. So yeah, guys, episode 20. Woo woo! <laughs> All right, you want to talk about the social media? Oh, yes. Our email address is myriderdiepodcast at gmail.com. What happens when people email us, Chantal? Fuck you! <laughs> <laughs> well... 
Only if they eat Mellow's complaints. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we should probably clarify that. (laughs) Don't fucking email us. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> Just get an email of her first, like, hometown story. <laughs> fuck, fuck you! <laughs> fuck you. Stop you. Oh, this. that was funny. <laughs> so, yes, only when it's complaints. That's right. You can go fuck yourself. And then we are on Instagram and Facebook. Those are our two more active sites because Twitter sucks <laughs> ass. It really does. Sorry, Twitter. <laughs> and not in a good way. Not in a good way, sucking ass. Not in the fun way. No, not in the fun way. It's a, it's a bad sucking ass kind of way. <laughs> so, the Jeffrey Dahmer way. It's the Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> I'm going to start calling it the Dahmer. Right. Dahmer way. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. Yes, some stuff gets posted there, but again, we're not actively doing anything with it but instagram and facebook definitely are too active and they are my ride or die podcast for both and then twitter's my ride or die pod because twitter sucks and we couldn't put podcasts as a full word so another reason why they suck i haven't been on the twitter account since i wrote the biography oh yeah that's the last (laughs) time i went on our twitter account yeah that was in june i have zero interest maybe i shouldn't be admitting to this no anyways whatever I have zero interest. I think everybody knows we hate Twitter. <laughs> At this point, definitely. <laughs> this point. At least by the end of this episode, they know. Yeah. If they've listened to any of the other ones, they definitely know. Yeah. They, you know, we complain about it all the time. So, yes. Yeah. Facebook and Insta, for sure. Email us. We will only tell you to go fuck yourself if <laughs> you complain. it's a complaint. Because <laughs> <laughs> we know we're fucking awesome. Yes, we are. And That's I- why you listen to us. Yes. And people are starting to reach out. So, yes, next week we are so fucking excited to discuss the person that reached out to us this week and get into that story is just, like, the best. I mean... Mind blown! Right. So, anyway. Um, we're going to go get ready for a party. So, we're going to go shower and get ready for our potty. Par- party. <laughs> for a potty. Go get ready for our potty. Our potty. And that's it. We'll, we'll talk to you guys next week. Peace out, bitches. Bye! Bye.